0: We'd very much like to thank tonight's sponsors Blue Apron, Mac Weldon,
1: and The Great Courses Plus. Please remember, supporting our sponsors supports us, and thanks to that, some exciting things are pending for the future of Astonishing Legends. And more importantly, you guys, our listeners.
0: Ah, I'm getting a corner office. Right? No, 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 not so much. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'd settle for it. You, you, you'd cut a hole in this foam fort here so I can see out. Yeah, That'd be nice. Blanket Fortiana is yeah. very encroaching, claustrophobic. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, it's time for Astonishing Legends to change directions a little bit. We've
1: been down some crazy roads that border on true crime lately. Well, we enjoy covering that stuff, sure. But there's a whole lot more we like to talk about. 36 episodes, and we've never done a UFO story, really.
0: Well, I mean, you know, Lake Baikal. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. That was a big big element. of. Oh, I think it saved. (laughs) It's probably saved the episode. No, it was
1: all interesting, but you're right. It wasn't the main focus. Exactly. So it's time for us to to take a good look at a good, fun UFO story. There are thousands
0: upon thousands of them, but only a small percentage warrant extra attention, and tonight's show is one of those cases.
1: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this
0: is Forrest Burgess. Ronald Johnson doesn't know what it was, but it rumbled, whistled like a jet or the high whine of tires on the freeway and shot into the sky and left a glowing ring behind on the ground. Page two of the Selena Journal, Friday,
1: November 5th, 1971. Join us tonight for part one of a two-part series on a paradoxically infamous but also obscure close encounter of the second kind from 1971. On November 15th of 1971, Elvis Presley played an hour and 10 minute set in Kansas City. He was in rare form that night, making fun of himself, according to fan Peggy Elzia's article in Kieran Davis's book, Elvis on Tour, 1971. There's a whole book, yes. Just about that one <laughs> Did you read year it? of touring. Oh, no, wait, I th- want it. Okay, I've read excerpts on Yeah, that's
0: not the, uh, the book that uh, the guy swam with at Oak Island.
1: No what, that what was Elvis and you? me
0: that oh, was Elvis that was me. Elvis and me, but, yeah, that's but right. it was by when he had Priscilla. the nervous breakdown, and well, left the he island. saw something very, very scary that caused him to swim to the mainland, yes. anyway, if you listen to that episode, you'll get it all, but yes. yeah, not
1: that book right well according, okay. according to this fan, Peggy, who was there, she said that night, November fifteenth seventy one on stage, Elvis said, "I was a weird little kid, man, I had sideburns, two years old, you know, a little bitty guitar." <laughs>
0: Okay, okay, yeah, now who's doing the impressions? Hey, you want to do it? I can't. (laughs) Look, I thought you were going to play a little piece of Love Me Tender right there. Well, I was.
1: I I made some calls. And and... I... (laughs) Turned out it was (laughs) $750,000.
0: Well, you made a wise decision, my friend. Elvis
1: is, or was, the
0: true king of rock and roll. Gone, but not forgotten. Actually, I saw him at the Malibu Country
1: Mart last week. Okay, so he's still alive. All right. All right, very good. Just 13 days prior... To the elvis concert only 200 miles to the west one of the most controversial trace evidence ufo encounters in history took root is it a coincidence maybe they were there to pick him up ah the delphos ring this is what you call a trace evidence case that means a ufo sighting where something tangible was left behind uh that's right and it's something tangible and unexplainable
0: as being terrestrial in origin, okay, meaning evidence of an alien nature. Now, when we say that, just means not of this Earth. They don't know, it doesn't seem like anything
1: from this planet, okay? That's right, and, 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 and that's where this case gets complicated, but before we get to that, let's talk about what happened. Ah, the moon was full and could be seen
0: in the southeastern sky. It was not cloudy, but it was around 7 p.m., well
1: after sunset, which was about 5.30 16-year-old Ronnie Johnson was doing his evening chores by tending to sheep on his family farm. He was about 250 feet from the back of the house, and his dog, Snowball, was with him. As he was heading around to the back of the barn,
0: he heard a rumbling sound that he compared to what might sound like a, uh, an old washing machine. You know, that kind of that kind of rumbling, thumping sound. Right, and especially if it's like a little out of balance. Yeah, There's you've a heard time. that. You, you, put yeah. a, you put a blanket, one, a big heavy blanket on one side, and it's going ba-dum, ba you know. That yeah. Kind of, yeah, I love this description. This, this story is so analog. <laughs> well, yeah, but if you've ever done laundry, you know exactly what he's talking about. Yeah. yeah. That kind of thumping sound. Anyway, a kind of a mechanical
1: thumping, running motor sound. Right, which is the first thing that's kind of anachronistic for a UFO sighting.
0: Well, a lot of them nowadays, yeah, because that's the other thing they say is they're completely silent, Yeah, which freaks people out because here's this thing not making any noise. Anyway, so that's what Ronnie was saying. And in addition to the rumbling, the object, which was about 75 feet away from Ronnie at the time and hovering just above the ground, it became illuminated with multicolored light. And he described the light as not being from bulbs, but emanating from all over the surface of the object, blue, red, and orange, and not changing but staying constant. And on top of that, it was glowing at its base and some sort of material seemed to be drifting down out of the bottom of it Onto the ground. Yes, I love
1: that detail. It reminds me of the end of Starman, which I, I don't want to spoil. I think I've, yeah. I've probably mentioned it on 20 prior episodes. Well,
0: no, we did one. We, okay. Yes, we have okay. Mark, we have mentioned it. Yeah.
1: But if you haven't seen it, kids, check it out. Jeff Bridges was actually Oscar nominated for his performance in that movie in 1985, I think. But he lost out to an equally amazing performance by F. Murray Abraham as Salieri in Amadeus. Ah, Yes.
0: We've talked about that one actor who plays the kind scientist, Charles Martin
1: Smith. Yes. Yes. That's the guy E.T. needs to find if he wants to live.
0: Right. He's so recognizable. And Jeff Bridges was awesome because he develops this kind of like, Jenny and then I make maps. (laughs) Yeah. It's just great. But the other thing I was going to say, UFO wise, anyway, is that it reminds me of another UFO incident closer to my homeland, the Maori Island incident, kind of south of Seattle. Now, I'm not from
1: the Seattle area, but Force will never indicate exactly where he's from. He's from a vague region. <laughs> it's the in Pacific, the, like the northwest say, yeah. corner of let's the say United Pacific.
0: State. We say Pacific Northwest. Yeah. There was another case though where several craft ejected what looked like bits of metal. So. That were totally. I've heard remo- about this story. They, no, didn't yeah. they find mercury on the water or something? Uh, it's not like mercury. Well, Those no, look, it's a famous kind of a story. And what I love about it is that one, it ejected stuff, metallic chunks. It's stuff. Stuff. It's a uh, well, they don't. Term. They don't know what it is, but yeah. it was. It looked like chunks of maybe molten aluminum or something metallic. And it ended up breaking the arm of the son, of the captain of the boat that they were over. I don't know if, I'm sorry, that makes any sense. But they were over a, a fishing boat in <laughs> yeah, the area. Right. One of the craft seems like it's wobbling. It's having trouble flying. It then ejects out of its center. These are kind of like chunks of, uh, or bits of metal that were molten. You know what I'm saying? You know, the, like gold yeah.
1: nuggets. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. That's the picture that I'm getting.
1: Okay. Well,
0: one falls and kills the dog, the family dog. Aww. One breaks the arm of the son of the boat captain. So then, of course, the armed forces come out and want to collect this material. And what I love about this story is that there's two incidences to this phenomenon, this happening— one, it's the sighting of these craft and the ejection of the material, and uh, I don't love the dog getting hurt, but yeah, or, the, yeah. or the sun. but there's physical material. That's in a close encounter of the second kind, trace material left behind. Right. Okay, and then the second aspect of this, the military comes out, and they want to collect this material, and they get some. They gather this stuff up, whatever was left on the beach that they could find, and on the boat. They confiscate it. The military transport plane on its way back down to an Air Force base crashes not long after it takes off. Okay. Big mystery. Right. Military then has to come out again, collect the plane debris, and figure out what happened. Was it a mechanical failure? What did they do with the material? No one knows. It's like Super 8. There you go. Okay. So anyway. Anyway. Yeah, so- but but, it's, but uh, I will say this before we continue. It is one of those rare cases where there is physical trace evidence. Yes. If you believe this case... Right. Yeah,
1: there you go. Okay, I want to take a quick moment to mention one of the sponsors of tonight's show, Blue Apron. These guys deliver delicious, ready-to-cook meals to your house, and that's perfect for me because I actually, I love to cook, but I'm challenged by the fact that I hate going to the grocery store. And on top of that, I can never think what to make. Blue Apron takes
0: care of all of that for you. Their website is a breeze to use, and more importantly, their culinary
1: team has new recipes each week that are not repeated within a year. Yeah, I love that too, because I've tried some of their competitors before, and that's where you always wind up. You get tired of your choices, so Ah. it's great to know you're going to have something new to make every time you use them. And on top of that, you can customize your recipes weekly if you want. It reminds me of a saying, I believe
0: attributed to Mark Bittman, a great cook, and he said, when you start off with real food, you end up with real food. Okay, Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals, so they set the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, and ranchers. Whether it's Japanese ramen noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron brings you the best. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes
1: along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. And every meal they send has step-by-step instructions and can be made in 40 minutes or less, which is a stay-at-home, (laughs) cursory-researching, podcasting dad, I gotta say is awesome. It gives me more time for my family and more time for the show. Check out this week's menu and get your two meals free
0: with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash astonishing. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash
1: astonishing. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. All right, so getting back to our story, Ronnie described the object as being roughly shaped like a mushroom, about nine feet in diameter and ten feet high. It was so bright that it was difficult for him to make out much more than that. Looking directly at it actually hurt his eyes. The sheep were freaking out as well, bellowing like crazy. Ronnie
0: was frozen with fear. Uh, he stood as still as he could, and he noticed that Snowball the dog, who was the object of our derision on Twitter last week, well, yours anyway, I would never criticize a dog. It was <laughs> But he was dead silent as well, and
1: not moving. More importantly, he wasn't protecting Ronnie by attacking the UFO in the freaking backyard. He <laughs> well, had one job, Snowball. What's he, one job. He's going to do jump twenty feet in the air to bite this thing. I don't Come know. On. He's supposed to be his man's best well, friend. Well, no, but it's
0: it's like the Laughing Indian. I find this fascinating because animals are so in tune and they see things that we don't. I'm convinced of that. Of yes, course, but here's someone things. already
1: pointed out to me that yeah. in the Laughing Indian, that dog didn't do anything either. Well, no, that's
0: what I'm saying. Because it's, is it just in Mark's head? What is he seeing? Is it benign? Does he know that it's not really a threat? There's so much going on uh, that when the dog does not react, especially at this big glowing mushroom orb, what are they seeing? What how how was the, staring at it. And well, no, how does the, you know what I'm saying? How does the dog interpret that? You know, yeah. do, do, you know it's different between a cat watching television and a dog because yeah. they say that dogs don't really gronk what's going on. On the I think it's gronk. I say gronk, like Gronkowski, Rob Gronkowski. Never, never, mind. Sorry, okay. <laughs> continuing on. What I'm saying is that you don't know what's going on or what, how they interpret that. Right. You know, it's like headlights coming down the road. Why is a jackrabbit or a deer, this is a good time to launch out in the middle of the road. Yeah. They're afraid, but they're leaping towards it. So anyway, it's an
1: interesting aspect of this story, the animal yeah. aspect. Well, and the other part about this was Ronnie is pretty sure he would have noticed it earlier had it either been lit up or making any noise. So in his mind... This thing may have been there for quite some time, just quietly sitting in the dark, which in a lot of ways is kind of terrifying. Yeah, exactly. And
0: was it making noise then? Did it just start making noise? There's a lot of things to this description that we don't know yet, but we're lucky to even have this description because it's a pretty close encounter, I will say. All right, so how long did it hang out after he saw it? Well, according to him, several minutes. Uh, Then the base of it lit up even more and it began to rise into the sky pretty quickly, but not straight up, at more of an angle and passing within about four feet of a roof of a shed in its path, Ronnie said that when it got over the shed, the rumbling noise
1: changed to more of a high-pitched sound similar to a jet engine. Now, at this point, he completely lost his vision, according to the Flying Saucer Review's Supplemental Case Histories publication in February of 1972. Even though he couldn't see, he could still hear it flying away. His sight eventually returned, and he could still see it in the sky, so he ran to the house to tell his parents. His mom had called out to him earlier to come in for dinner, and he told her he was on his way before he saw this thing. But it took him so long to come in, she called for him again, and that time he didn't answer. She did not, however, witness anything at this point. No, and as the craft departed to the southeast, it passed the farmhouse on the west side. So and now Ronnie is freaking out, yelling at his parents, who, like all parents, when they hear something like that— Well, they thought he was crazy. Right. right to yeah. make, but they did finally make their way outside, and they reported that they saw a strange light in the sky as bright as a car headlight—this is a 1971 car headlight, by the yeah. way— But a car headlight about 100 feet away. And they said it was... That's not the distance to the light, but how bright the light it was. They said it was about half the size of the full moon, which, as we said earlier, was clearly visible at the same time in the southeastern sky. So there could not be a confusion between this thing, this craft, and the moon being the same object yeah so they're both in the sky at the same time exactly you you can't say well you just saw the moon
0: yeah well they all three reported that it was as bright as an arc welder which if you ever walked by one you shouldn't look directly at it it's very bright i always look right at (laughs) it don't do that i know (laughs) no it will burn a hole in your retina yeah okay well keep in mind these folks aren't elderly here okay durell
1: was only 52 and irma was 49 and these are ronnie's parents now that the ufo is way up in the sky they're curious about the area where it was hovering and would there be evidence there they head around the
0: shed to where Ronnie said he had seen it and saw something that blew their minds. A glowing white ring on the ground that was so bright, Irma, Ronnie's mom, said, you could have read a newspaper by it. And it wasn't the only thing glowing. The trees around the Path of Ascension were apparently glowing in various places as well. Now, both Irma and Darrell Johnson seemed to think it was a good idea to try and touch the ring, and no sooner had they done that than they both lost feeling in their fingers from where they touched it. And Mrs. Johnson even
1: touched her leg with the same hand, and that became numb too. The numbness was so severe, it stuck with Mrs. Johnson for several weeks. She actually worked at a senior living facility and apparently was unable to take pulses on any of the residents for a while because she couldn't feel anything in her fingers.
0: If it's a made-up story, again, that's a long way to carry a joke.
1: Yeah, okay. there's a, it's a <laughs> yeah, lot it's of like, details. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. A lot of interesting details.
1: And Mr. Johnson said, however, that even though he felt the numbness, his hands recovered quicker. And I, I would posit that being a farmer and working his farm daily, his skin was probably tougher and more impervious to the deleterious side effects of whatever was in that white ring. Oh, I I
0: agree. Yes, he's got working man's hands. And here's the last bit of information that's so wonderful. Mrs. Johnson had the foresight to photograph the ring while it was glowing. She ran into the house, grabbed a Polaroid camera, and brought it out to take what is now a famous photo of the ring just 10 minutes after they first discovered it. She stated that it was so bright, it was easy to find in the viewfinder, and she also said that she did not use a flash. This fact will be important later. And I will say this, in UFO lore, I think it's one of the only photographs, really, that is that soon after an incident.
1: Yeah. I mean, in a yeah. Polaroid,
0: yes. Well, of course, now people have digital uh, you know, cameras and photos from things that happen while it's happening, but not... Of this kind of evidence, you know what I'm saying? There's a difference, and that's important. I Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Okay. That's pretty much the end of the encounter, right? Yes, but not the aftermath, which continues to this day. Yeah. Okay, so getting back to our story, which, as you told me years ago, before not even to do a podcast on, you were just asking me if I knew about it. You said, have you heard of the Delphos Ring, which is what it's commonly referred as. Yeah, and
1: I guess, and I only just found this out last week from the ARC, actually, but I guess the locals actually pronounce it Delphos. The Delphos Ring, yeah. Yeah, but it's spelled Delphos with an O, but if, if so, if you don't take regional accents into account, but in Greek mythology, it is also spelled with a U as Delphos. Okay, well, so which is it? I, you know, I don't know. But, but Delphus, <laughs> Delphos I, yeah. was the son of Apollo in yeah. one tradition and the son of Poseidon and Melantho and others. Melantho being a servant in Odysseus's household that was tricked by Poseidon as he appeared to her in the form of a dolphin. Oh, is,
0: he's always uh, doing that, isn't he? Yeah, that's yes. what I used to do in college to get <laughs> no, the girls. Yeah, appearing as an animal. Yeah. A pup, well, I think a, a, cute, a cute puppy would work best. Yeah. It's a truncation of a name. It's like in sailing, Gunwale. Ocean. It's not gunwale, it's gunnel. Gunnel. Yes. Forecastle is not forecastle. It's forksle.
1: Yeah. There you go. Oh, oh, okay. well, All right. Anyway, it, it probably isn't relevant to tonight's story beyond this point, except for the interesting idea that Delphi in ancient Greece was named for Delphos, as in the Oracle at Delphi. Delphi. Yes, yeah. right. And it was actually thought to be the center of the world for around four hundred years until Rome embraced Christianity and forbade prophesying at Delphos. Ah,
0: okay. But Delphos, Kansas Was not actually named for
1: Delphi, ancient Greece, however. No, it was named for Delphus, Ohio. (laughs) Okay. By its founders who had come from Delphus, Ohio. And Delphus, Ohio was named after four small towns there that had merged to form one city. And we couldn't find any information on why that one was called Delphus. but We think it's pretty clear that by the time Delphus, Kansas was named... Well, it's probably irrelevant.
0: <laughs> okay. And, well, you
1: know, it was yes. Tangent warning. So we're
0: ruling out a UFO coming to Earth to visit the Oracle at Delphi and having typed the wrong thing into ways,
1: right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Okay. They they okay. should have made a left turn at Albuquerque.
0: Uh, okay. No.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <the>, uh, <laughs> no, we're, we're totally yeah. we're totally making jokes about this story right now, which actually it brings up a fascinating yeah. point about UFO stories. And and before we drill down on it, I just want to be absolutely clear that regardless of the veracity of this story. We're not in any way making fun of Ronnie Johnson or his family or what they purportedly witnessed.
0: Absolutely, because without these stories, we'd have nothing to talk about. And we do love talking about this stuff. A few weeks ago, we told you about The Great Courses Plus an amazing place online where you can go to learn about all the things you either forgot or never got a
1: chance to check out when you were in school. That's right, with thousands of lectures from hundreds of courses available, you can learn about anything that interests you, and we want to give you a chance to try it out for free. When they first came to us, they asked us to check out one of their more popular courses called Turning
0: Points of Modern History, taught by Professor Vejas Lulavachas. It's a fascinating look at key figures, events, and discoveries that have impacted and shaped history.
1: I love these lectures. I actually really dug the one on the opium war in China, which I think is uh, number 12 in this series. It was just too cool not to watch. I learned that Samuel Taylor Coleridge wrote what Professor Lulavichus calls one of the most famous drug-induced works of art in history, the poem *Kubla Khan.
0: Yes, Coleridge, one of my favorites, really. Uh, you've heard of Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner? Yeah. The albatross around your neck. Oh, yeah. Yeah, He did all that. I I don't know if he was on drugs. I don't know if he would have been smoking opium. Yeah. Who knows, probably. But that's the great thing about this. You get to find out for real, not from a couple of bumbling idiots like ourselves. It's a treasure trove of information. With the Great Courses Plus, you can watch as many different lectures as you want
1: anytime, anywhere. And now, The Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners a chance to stream hundreds of their courses, including Turning Points in Modern History, a $215 value for free when you go to the slash legends. Start watching today. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. So the problem with even the word UFO is that it has a stigmatized connotation now that has been specifically engineered to make any discussion of the topic make you seem like you're out of your gourd. (laughs) Right. Well, okay, remember this thing, because actually
0: this comes up in contemporary UFO discussion. Think about what it stands for unidentified flying object. It's just unidentified. It doesn't mean there's little green men or whatever, or there's some kind of woo-woo wacko thing about it. It's just that you saw something that did not look like any other plane or helicopter, any other flying object that, most people have ever seen. You couldn't identify it. Exactly. That's all that means. So yeah, it doesn't mean you're crazy. It's just something strange. Now, the military has a lot of strange things that most civilians have not seen. Yeah. But that's why when a pilot sees something, especially a military pilot sees something, that's taken with a little more credibility because they've seen a lot of strange craft, especially if it's experimental. And if they haven't seen it and can't tell you what that is and doesn't behave in that
1: way, then... You should take notice. Well, it's interesting you should say that, actually, because one of the books that we research for tonight's show is called The Compelling Scientific Evidence for UFOs. It's by Dr. Errol A. Farouk. And it's available on Kindle, by the way. And it's a very interesting read, although it's not without its critics. But Dr. Farouk points out that the U.S. Air Force had a lot to do with creating the stigma around UFO reports on purpose. And so the question you ask is, is to what end? Is it to protect military secrets? Well, I'll tell you exactly to what end, Scott. I knew you would know this. <laughs>
0: to make people think you're a wacko. That's
1: it. It's it, Yeah, but it, why?
0: What's the goal? Because it takes attention away from it. If people say, hey, there was this glowing thing, especially if it caused damage, and now my hands and feet are numb, I want somebody to sue. And if you sound like you're just crazy, well, there's nobody to sue. I think I maybe have mentioned this case before, but it's fairly recent within the last maybe three or four years. This poor woman, her husband dying of a bad cancer, and he worked at Area 51 every day. Well, you can't sue us for that, for putting you in harm's way, because it doesn't exist. Right. And I think the final ruling was that it's more important for national security than for you to sue over your husband's death, that this place does you not exist. You know what? Though, Just America. take care of her. Well, that's what they should do. I mean, why does it even have to get that far? Because even even doing, I I think the line is that even doing that would be admission that there is weird things out there. What, and what, Putin's going to kidnap her and like (laughs) water border? I don't, I don't understand. But you know, the reason why is because they're so secretive there that his job was to burn everything in a pit, and that included all... the this is that guy. Yeah. I remember that guy. He was was a custodian uh, of sorts, and he just burned, because nothing must leave that base. No papers, no office equipment. You don't know who scratched what into what. Your Alien (laughs) bodies? Alien bodies. Everything went into the pit, and he burned it probably with a uh, very flammable liquid and just destroyed it all. But, of course, being around all that smoke gave him some nasty stuff. So the reason for doing that is that you don't want people coming back to the Air Force or the Army saying like, hey, you crushed my shed and now I have leukemia. So I want some answers. What is that thing? So if you look kind of crazy, it's misdirection. And so okay. it's it, that's the one uh, big argument by UFO proponents and enthusiasts. It is, it's really just misdirection from a long time ago. Now, the other vein that you mentioned earlier tonight was that, There might be an easing into the acceptance of UFOs, into the zeitgeist, the public consciousness.
1: And I have to confess, you know, as a producer (laughs) of our show, I've had nervousness about doing a UFO show, which is why we're so far in before we got to one. And then also we did the Bigfoot show. Bigfoot is the same thing. Well, you're crazy if you talk about Bigfoot. No, but it's not fair because – You don't have to be crazy to embrace the idea of something that's never been discovered before. It's it's not... That's always happened throughout the
0: human history. And look, uh, then, yeah. then Alexander the Great was crazy because he also had a UFO encounter yeah. as they were approaching the Battle of Tyre. So merely seeing something that you cannot explain does not make you crazy. Now, you might debate what you saw, and I believe this is true. A lot of people see stuff that's actually a phenomenon that they don't know what it is exactly. So, of course, that's what they jump to. And maybe occasionally it really is the planet Venus, you know, but I would say a lot of the time people see something that they know is not Venus, swamp gas, whatever you might say. I can't say what it is, but it is not of the ordinary realms. It doesn't make you crazy just to have witnessed something moving around in the woods that was very tall and hairy. Doesn't make you any crazier than we are. We're sitting in a blanket for it and talking about (laughs) it. Talking about it. (laughs) If you've listened to some crazy debunking Uh, explanations they sound I say this a lot they sound crazier than than people describing what happened at the time I agree because you're trying to hammer that square peg into that round hole and it ain't fitting. And it, you, now you sound crazy. Yeah. But I think most people just don't, they don't want to believe in this stuff. It's just too frightening. I, re, I personally believe that. So We're anyway, about to get yeah. 50 emails for overusing oh, the term crazy, crazy, by the way. No. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, no offense to anybody, crazy or not, yes. or whatever you've seen. Including uh, us. However, this is something you cannot deny. And this is what people, debunkers and skeptics alike, the, and, and rationalists,
1: show me some evidence. Get, show me some trace evidence. Well, what, let's what talk was about left, that. Yeah, what was left behind? According to our research, there are 3,500 to 5,000 catalogued trace evidence cases. I'm not sure to what degree they're all worth looking at, but the Delphus Ring is probably easily the most famous trace evidence case, I think. Uh, but they've happened all over the world, and I looked at this list of yeah. all these that that, that we are referencing, and a lot of them are overseas, frankly. They're, yeah. It's France. It's a oh, hotbed, really? by the way. Oh, yeah, France is a hotbed. There's The aliens are going there and dumping their trash <laughs> well, who
0: doesn't want, picnic tables. Who doesn't, want to, yeah. who doesn't want a vacation in France? Yeah. In
1: addition to the ring, which we'll get into detail here, more detail on in a minute, there was also a three-inch diameter tree branch that was dangling down from a tree next to where Ronnie saw the ring. It had been broken about eight feet off the ground. And But it was still attached to the tree. And it had some strange characteristics. It was snapped as though a branch would snap when, like when a tree is dead. But the thing was, that this particular tree wasn't dead. The tree itself was green under the bark and it still had leaves on it.
0: Yeah, that was reported by uh, Thaddeus Smith, the local Delphus Republican yes, newspaper reporter. Yes, she
1: was the reporter that yeah. wound up doing the story. Yeah, she brought some of her, I think, family members. They well, went down there. Well, she brought her yeah. husband at the time, and I think it was her stepson or cousin or yeah. something like that. They were all curious about it. Sure. But no,
0: that was her description. So now we're getting into interesting facts because it's not just, you can take any one of these things and, and maybe biologically take it apart saying, well, it was this, it was fungus, it was this, it was a dead tree, bark beetles, whatever. In combination, it starts to get more interesting because yes, that description that it was green under the bark, but it cracked and broke like it was really dry, dead wood.
1: Yes. And it was it had green leaves on the end of it too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and the other thing about it is at the base, it was blistered and had like a whitish ash around it, which is the other like super weird thing about it. And it, so it, it's a little bit unexplainable. I guess you could jump up and try to pull it down. Maybe it would have snapped that way. But I mean, you're hmm. not going to jump up eight feet, but it's- it, Well, unless it's, you're in the Love Pass. Yeah. <laughs> you're <laughs> you're be, trying to get away from yeah. a Russian Yeti. Anyway, okay. um, the, the ring was glowing. That's what everyone says. And the reason I mentioned that it was important that Irma Johnson, Mrs. Johnson, pointed out that she did not use a flash- was because when the investigators came out, the one most famously associated with the case is actually Ted Phillips, who we're going to talk about here in a little bit. And he's not the only guy. A guy came out, I believe, from the Air Force. I can't remember. But he immediately debunked the photo and said, oh, it's, it's very clearly – talk about swamp gas. Yeah. So it's <laughs> very clearly the glow is from a camera flash. Yeah. She said that she didn't use a camera flash on the Polaroid. I honestly can't remember if you had a choice. You could. Did, did it plug into the top or uh, it you depends turn it on, on and it, off? It depends on the model.
0: They started off with a flash bar. And for you youngsters, that mm-hmm. was a, a bar that had like, I think five, maybe six uh, flash bulbs in it. Yeah, and they blew out they, they, yeah, they just worked once. One at a time. I, and I think maybe you could flip it around. Some cameras had the flash cube, remember, in in the camera yeah. as you advance the film, the it would flip would it around. So there's four there's four flash shots on it and then you just My throw question it. is yeah.
1: can you turn the flash off on a Polaroid? Well, you don't stick the bar in. Yeah. So she brought it out. She took that picture. Right. Which I believe was the last one they had as well, if I remember. Oh, the last photo, the last... Yeah, uh, yeah. it's always that way, isn't it? Kind of like the Yeti shot at (laughs) Dyalov, Right. But... Uh, which actually wasn't the last shot. It was second to last, wasn't it? I think so. Well, but it was second to last on one camera. They no, had like five yes, cameras. So, but anyway, the other one had the, uh, the,
0: the exploding orbs. We there shouldn't go. go down that.
1: Orbs. Orbs. Yes, orbs. Yes, okay. So she said she took it without a flash. The ring was glowing. The, you know, the Air Force guy said, oh, no, it's definitely, yeah. it's not glowing. It's just reflecting the camera flash. Right. So there's that whole debate, which is another part of what we're going to talk about in part two. But right now we're going to talk about Ted Phillips. He was the first investigator on the scene, and he's the one who wrote the report in the Flying Saucer Review. Speaking of stigmatized, (laughs) the Flying Saucer, even more stigmatized (laughs) than UFO, the Flying Saucer Review, it's even for me- With the whole argument I just made about stigmatization, <laughs> okay. it's hard for me to even say that. With right. Straight Plus, things. this was a flying mushroom. Yes.
0: Yeah. It shape. was a flying mushroom. Yeah. I don't cap, guess they had well a, the cap, the cap part, not the. So stem. it was in the
1: wrong magazine. It should have been in the flying mushroom review. No,
0: but when you were <laughs> when you were growing up, it was you know it was saucers, and that I think that comes from you know forty seven uh, again. Saucers a, are still being cited to this day. There's all there's all manner of shapes. Yeah. The, but the most popular ones now are the black triangles. That's well, the, that's the latest version. They're
1: popular, but the saucers yeah. are still out there. No,
0: no, saucers are still out there, but I believe now I might be misspeaking here, but uh that was a misappropriation of a shape name from Kenneth Arnold's 1947 sighting around Mount Rainier. They were actually kind of crescent shaped, but the newspapers I believe said they they kind of just said saucers and then oh. that's what stuck. However, this is why Forrest is my code. I don't know these things. <laughs> However, if you're in uh, Alexander the Great's uh, military column marching, and uh, geez, when was that? 329 BC, something like that. You describe them as gleaming silver shields coming down to buzz your troops. Yeah. So there you go. You go with what's uh, saucers. We don't, you know, most saucers. people have t- teacups and saucers. Yeah, so that description, though, is seminal, I think, you could say. Yeah. And for that uh, that journal, for that review, again, one of the first cases where people are actually looking at something left behind.
1: Right, exactly. So getting to Ted Phillips, he was the first investigator on the scene, and he is the one who wrote that report, as I said, in the Flying Saucer Review. Now, Ted is an extremely competent investigator and is pretty much the go-to guy on this case, and he was also a friend of J. Allen Hynek. God. Dr. Heineck. one of your favorites.
0: Well, he's uh, because I I love that he changed his tune.
1: Because yes. Again, we mentioned
0: him uh, Lake Baikal. Yes, we yeah. did. Yes, we did. Uh, it's it might be just swamp gas, which again that the papers pick up and it's stuck. Yes, he was the guy that said that, right? Yeah. Well, he he was asked, I I believe, to make a comment just off the top, you know, off the cuff, off the top of his head. And he just said, "I don't know. Maybe it's <laughs> look at the region. There's it's there's swamps around there, right? Maybe it's swamp gas. I I don't know how cavalier he was, but he later regretted that.
1: Yes, he did. And then
0: he got into and this is is not a, a hack. I, I think one of our astonishing research core team members who knows about this stuff. I just remember that flashing. I, I couldn't I was I couldn't get too deep into it at the time, but it was like, is this guy some kind of hack? He's like no no no." This guy is a, a physicist of, of the highest order and uh, worked for the government for a long time, but also came up with the title
1: to a great film, which we've mentioned before. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Heinick actually came up with a whole classification system for the types of encounters that you might have with a UFO. Yes, And I, I can't remember if we went through this list in the Lake Baikal episode. We might have. Uh, but- not
0: the whole thing, because that now, yes, there's subdivisions now. But basically, of all the stories he started hearing, uh, he said, well, you know, scientifically, again, this guy's a scientist. We have to classify this somehow. Exactly. Because the types of encounters we're seeing... Spielberg he had him as a consultant
1: on close encounters. Oh, yeah. yeah. And he had a cameo at the end. Yes. When he, yeah. he when they Bearded step guy off the with ship. a pipe. Yes, yeah. he had a pipe if you decide to watch it again. So his system starts here. It starts with the NL that stands for nocturnal lights. The next one is ND, nocturnal disks. Then there's DD, daylight disks or objects. RV radar visual cases. And by the way, while we're on that, I just mm-hmm. want to quickly point out that Ted Phillips did contact a local radar installation I oh, came yeah. and yeah. asked them if they had a signature yeah. for the craft that Ronnie Johnson saw. And that night, their equipment was off. <laughs> oh, really? So, yes. Just having to be off? Yeah. Okay. So, well, I mean, they probably, who yeah. knows? I'm trying to save on the power bill. Yeah, cleaning the screens. So after the radar visual cases... There's the CE one. That's a close encounter of the first kind, which is just generally a sighting.
0: Yeah, that's. However, what I thought, that's the what I ones,
1: thought. yeah, but the ones before it are sightings as well. So I'm not. Well, sure nocturnal. You
0: not you're you're saying uh, types of sightings. So. Yeah,
1: maybe a daylight sight. But there's already daylight discs.
0: Yeah, I, I think I think now when you're actually talking about a uh, a pretty established sighting, maybe multiple witnesses. Something confirmed by several people, and maybe even photographic evidence.
1: Yes, and then so, and then after that, we have the CE two, the close encounter of the second kind, which, which is, is what we're talking about tonight. Right, trace evidence case. Yeah, evidence left behind.
0: Exactly. Other than just a photo, which is just a photo, and of course nowadays is probably photoshopped. But now we're talking about physical evidence left behind that is not. Explainable by earthly means. Exactly. Close encounters of the third kind,
1: and then there's CE three, the close encounter of the third kind, which, which is you're Richard Dreyfus and you, you're wearing a red tracksuit and you go aboard a giant mothership. Yes. <laughs> well, there, I no, guess willingly. Willingly. Well, he it's did. Contact. Yeah. No, no. It's, it's, well, it's different from yes. the fourth kind, which Jacques ah. Vallée. Yeah. added to the list after, you know, he augmented Hynek's list. Yes, that's right. There's so subcategories. Then, yes. Yeah. Well, there's Close Encounter of the Fourth Kind, which is an abduction case. So that's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's when Richard Dreyfus gets taken <laughs> in the middle of the night and probed. <laughs> Against, and,
0: and he wasn't, yes. No, he disagreed upon at, uh, at the onset. Yeah. Yes.
1: Please. Where's your Richard Dreyfus? Because now is the time to do it. Uh, Richard Dreyfus uh, being probed uh, and probed. Boy, you didn't. Uh, I can't work like this! <laughs> Yeah,
0: that's. I'm sorry. That's the. It's a short notice. Was worth. That was worth the price of admission. (laughs)
1: That was worth the price. Um, And then there's close encounters of the fifth kind, where there's actual communication between a person and an alien. Yeah, and which can be psychic, apparently.
0: Yeah, that's. Well, no, that's a very valid uh, point because that happens quite a bit. I just previewed a um, a book or put it on my wish list for Amazon uh, from Ingo Swan. And that's kind of the title is the uh, the penetration by. Addiction. Why are you using the word penetrate? I don't want to be that's the name of the penetrated. Is, I know that was well got your attention, didn't it? Yeah, well, that's to, to check uh, you'll out. You'll feel well. a
1: slight pinch.
0: Well, he's <laughs> <laughs> look, he's kind of a, a a major figure in the field of remote viewing, right. and uh, you could say oh, God, psychic don't
1: mention remote viewing again.
0: Well, people have been asking. Yes, they have. And we are going to do it. It's going to be a while. It's going to be a while because I have to become a master in it. So it's like, like, (laughs) give me two months, I'll get my black belt. (laughs) No, it doesn't work like that. But that's a whole other
1: story, seriously. Yeah. And that involves Dr. Alexander Cannon. So Ted Phillips went to investigate this case and he went quickly because he believed in getting to witnesses before they could be corrupted by retelling the story or leading questions from journalists. And he also wanted to acquire the trace evidence that was there before it could be contaminated or it changed states too much. And he actually wound up collecting over 35 pounds of soil from the area for testing. And he noted that on the surface, the, the soil was dried and crusted. It appeared to be hydrophobic or water repellent which is all the rage these days now. Everybody's coming out with these yeah. sprays for your iPhone and the water oh. just beads up. Yeah, no, they you
0: have know. them now. It's a, There's a paint. And uh, yeah, basically when you see the demonstration, it, you can actually, uh, uh, and it's interesting because you can take like a metal sheet, paint a square on it, and it will, uh, all the water will gather up around it. Or conversely... Uh, be contained in a square and will not move outside. Yeah. It's pretty freaky looking. It, look, it looks like a square pillow of water. Reverse engineered. Right. So, but <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. No, it's, uh, not, it's not really, it's just simple no. science, but it's yeah, pretty Yeah, no, no, cool. but it's important because it's not totally freaky. This does happen. It you, does. You can engineer this to happen. Not then. Not Back then, then not, not yeah. so
1: much. Not so much. That's, there, were, that's, there are natural occurring hydrophobic things though, which again, we'll talk about in part two. So
0: I wanted to point this out. So Philip reports on this, but this was also seen by the family. They noticed, I I believe a couple of days later, there was a rain. The ground uh, inside the Yeah. Inside the circle and immediately outside, but the ring was dry. The Mm -hmm. ring part itself was dry. And what's interesting is I believe a sometime later, maybe a couple of weeks later, it snowed. Yes. And the snow stuck to the ring part and didn't melt and didn't yes, but no. was but was melted in the center and around
1: outside of the ring. So yeah, it was that's and melted everywhere
0: else. There you go. Pretty interesting.
1: Yeah. yeah, the top was white. It was crystallized, and in the ring. By the way, just so you guys know, was was about a foot thick, and it was eight feet in diameter, matching the size of the craft that Ronnie said he saw. So, even after thirty two days, it was still visible, and we have noted in our research that there was no growth within it for at least forty two months after it appeared. Yeah, no grass, nothing. So. And another thing that Johnson that Ronnie had said was that if when you took a transistor radio inside of it it failed to work. Now, yeah. I I love this fact. I wish that Ted Phillips had tried that or someone because I don't it's not corroborated it's just something that Ronnie mm-hmm. said. I wish they had tried to walk in there with a radio... Because they did test it for radiation. There was no yeah. radiation present. That's
0: interesting. So, no... Uh, they took a Geiger counter. Yes. No readings other than natural background radiation. Exactly.
1: Okay. So, and the other thing about it, when we talked about the hydrophobic properties, it was that the ground was actually dry down to 14 inches of depth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though it was muddy all around, and as you mentioned, the snow. hmm Another thing that Phillips noted... And this is that the the tree, there was a tree that had not, was knocked down. And I don't think we mentioned that earlier in the episode, but one of the things that had happened was that there was a dead tree that had, was seven inches in diameter and had been knocked down. And Phillips had speculated the possibility with the sheriff. He and the sheriff, I think, were examining things by themselves. And Phillips was like, well, do you think this is a hoax? Do you think they maybe pulled this down with a tractor? And the sheriff said, no, no. And, and that's going to come up later. The sheriff actually gives a character testimony about the family. But there was no obvious signs of how it came down. And according to the Johnson family, it was standing prior to the event. And in the way that it came down, Phillips concluded that the action of it coming down was associated with the craft landing or approaching the area as opposed to departing because it did not hit the tree when it departed. Ronnie did not say that it had. He just noted that after the incident, the tree was down. And here's the thing about the tree. He said, yeah, it was dead, but it was a pretty healthy tree in mm-hmm. terms of size. Yeah. Those are not easy to come down, and I will tell you that I personally know this because I had a friend. I, I used to have this Jeep, and I had a friend here in LA who had uh, these three or four trees in his yard, yeah, about this size. And he was like, "Hey, can you come over and we'll pull these out?" Because he was re-landscaping his house, and he likes to do everything himself, and didn't want to pay anybody if he didn't have to. And right. I was like, "Yeah, it'll be fun." Raw my truck, yeah. you know. And I went over there with the Jeep, and we wrapped a, uh, a cable around it—not a cable, because I'm smarter than that. It was a <laughs> Just, um, a tow strap, yeah with uh, one of those um, non-kinetic ones that doesn't expand. And I tried to back up and pull this, little tree about this size out of the ground, and it is hard. Yeah, Like the truck, I had I had to get into four low and back up, and yeah, you, you didn't, didn't the, want to come out of the ground. Right, you didn't use the winch. Well, I started with the winch, but yeah. the winch just pulled the jeep to the tree. Oh, that's funny. Which is how... Yeah,
0: And there's a giant, you know, four giant skid marks now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so this driveway. anyway, my point yeah. is,
1: is, it's not an easy thing to do, even with an old dead tree, unless it's like completely hollowed out and, you know, on the right. verge of death, which apparently this one wasn't. So that's just something to note about it, and I'm not trying to present confirmation bias because I don't know what to think about that tree, but they all say that it wasn't down before this and it was down after that. The other thing that Phillips noted was that he didn't think the craft could have had a vertical ascent to where it landed because there were branches over the area where it was seen Mm -hmm. and it couldn't have gone in or out of there Without damaging those branches, unless it was, you know, moving from dimension to dimension, (laughs) not following the traditional rules of physics and science. So there's that. And we published a link to Philip's report, which has a lot more information in it. But I want to talk about the elephant in the room, which is, was this whole story a hoax? Is it possible that they made it up? I mean, of course, it's always possible that things have been made up. But there's a lot of factors that you have to take into account when you're when you're evaluating the idea of that. And some folks on the internet have published uncooperated stories suggesting that there had been a chicken coop where the ring was. And the ring was a result of droppings mixed with oxidized chicken wire coming down on the ground for years and years and years. The thing is, Mr. Johnson stated that the family had been there for 14 years and there was never a structure where the ring was. So again, like Forrest says... These guys are doing a lot of work for this hoax if it is, yeah. in fact, a hoax, you yeah. know, deflecting all these different suppositions. And well, possi- I, and by the way, there yeah. is no – we couldn't find – and we dug deep and yeah. the arc went deep. We found all kinds of newspaper articles, all kinds of information. We did not find any other case anywhere that corroborated this one paragraph on one webpage where somebody says a neighbor said there was a chicken coop. Yeah, right. So right. that line in itself – is actually less believable yeah. than the story of the UFO. <laughs> yeah, which was another thing—a point that you made earlier yeah. about the whole like debunking thing—is really coming out of left field here.
0: You well, need witnesses
1: I, on yeah. both sides.
0: Well, that's one thing. Uh, you, you know, Professor Abbott says, which is kind of I I, I took to heart. He's because we asked him about some kind of outlandish left turns in in the uh, the TSM story, the Summerton Sor- the Summerton man, the man if you story. Heard yeah, and, and he's saying, like, well, you know, it's it's very interesting, it's very dramatic, but I can't find any kind of concrete evidence or proof of the this origin, so I have to leave it as that, other than, you know, just being a, an interesting story. I can't give it any credence. Not because he's found any evidence to the contrary, he's just, I can't find anything about it at all, so I have to t- leave it as it is. When you mention a hoax, I, I am a big proponent of, uh, there's an old saying, it's called, consider the source. And when it's a hoax, I look to the people hoaxing it because that's a certain type of person yeah. I've come to find out. If it's either a Bigfoot carcass in several glued together coolers with a bunch <laughs> of cow guts splayed all over it, which at the, again, at the first, like the guts, what do they run over it with their car? I yeah. feel like they're just adding things that don't make sense. Well, he, there are a couple of characters. Some folks are more nefarious. They're out for money. And fame. I think maybe, like with Ostman, I don't think it's totally, uh, it, it could not be totally a hoax, maybe. Maybe he did say something strange, uh, a strange creature moving around in the woods. Forrest is it.
1: Uh, making a reference yes. to episode 25. Oh, very good. God, you know the, the number of that one. Oh, yeah. I thought it might come up. Uh, it's the only reason I <laughs> yeah. remembered. Right. Uh, which is the Albert Ostman story. Albert Ostman was kidnapped by a Bigfoot. <laughs> Kidnapped by Bigfoot. And that is one of the more fun shows we've done, frankly. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't heard it, check it out. Oseman,
0: he may be just, a, you know, an old timer, as they say, spinning tall tales, but possibly based in a kernel of truth. But he never got any money for it. No. He just
1: liked telling the story. He wasn't even really famous for it either i mean he's more famous now yes i mean but but a lot of people people interviewed him but yeah exactly it wasn't like he went on a world tour
0: no it wasn't a big thing he just kind of you know and and again who knows maybe it was just for his own personal you know yucks and entertainment yes we digress now you look at uh, a balloon boy that guy's a little let's say colorful and wacky yeah. Okay, the the dad. And, yeah. uh, and he, you know, he was on a reality show. So obviously he enjoys publicity. Yes. So anyway, getting back to these folks, they don't strike me anything at all like that. Just regular, you know, good, hard-working Midwestern folks uh, on a farm.
1: Well, it's funny you should mention that because yeah. I you know and, and not to get anyone excited because we do not have an interview for this <laughs> well, episode almost we got yeah. real close to getting an interview with Ronnie Johnson he's yeah. still alive he's in his 60s and i actually called him last week and i spoke to him on the phone and he was very cordial but he also was clearly i think he's sick and tired of telling the <laughs> yeah, story <I'm> sure yeah, <laughs> of course yeah. and uh he he wasn't You know, I I said, hey, you know, I want to call you back in a couple of days. You know, he gave me a time and I called him back and he didn't answer.
0: Now, I think he's just
1: been at the grocery store. But I think he's just totally indifferent. No, he is. And he's tired of it. And he's not trying to be famous. And he's clearly right now anyway. And he's not trying to make money. And I told him we had this show and we're not the biggest show in the world. But hey, you know, we're closing in on three million downloads. If he wanted the story to still be getting out there. It would have been an easy way for him to participate. Right. But he said to me, you know, Well, I don't know, maybe between seven and eight, and he goes, you know, I'm I'm working a farm here, so Yeah. That's another thing. He, this guy is he has more important things to do. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I just didn't get a sense. And I I wanna come back around here to, you know, I didn't get a sense that he was, you know, Mr. Big Faker. Now, by the same token, right. he's an older man now. Yeah. You know, and there's yeah. it's a long time between sixteen and sixty something. Sure. But there are some other things that the Johnsons reported, and this is the parents, this is the whole family again. They reported that the sheep were jumping out of the pen every night for weeks after this. Snowball, who I guess stayed outside most of the time, was so violently trying to get in the house that they had to replace their back door with a steel door because he kept tearing it up. Yeah. So he was freaked out. True. Poor Snowball, I know we made <laughs> fun of you on Twitter, I'm sorry. No, you did, don't well, leave me out of it. Yes, yeah, okay. I did, All right, but it was funny. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, uh, and then on top of that, Ronnie had physical ailments. His eyes were sore, they were hurting, he had yeah. headaches, he had nightmares, and uh, he had a lot of issues for several weeks. So, you know, and then combine that with the numbness in the fingers with... Uh, his mother and his father. You've got a whole lot of details that are coming together. And he, and here's another thing that I wanted to say was that the the sheriff who was part of the investigation actually made a statement about the Johnson family to Phillips. And uh, it says it says the following: To whom it may concern, in reference to the UFO sighting at the Darrell Johnson residence near Delphos, on Kansas, and Darrell, by the way, is is Ronnie's father who's passed away uh, some time ago. I think it was might have been ninety six. Uh, Or earlier, but anyway. In reference to the UFO sighting at the Darrell Johnson residence near Delphos, Kansas, on November 2, 1971, the Johnsons are lifetime residents of Ottawa County and the Delphos community. They are well-known and well-respected by officers from this department. It is the opinion of this officer that the information given by them would be accurate to the best of their knowledge. So that's a character reference right there. And for what little 10-minute conversation I had with Ronnie, I can't tell you a whole lot about what his character's like. I mean, he could be a bank robber for all I know. <laughs> yeah. and But right. what, I'm not saying that, that's a joke. <laughs> no, it's, but, uh, yeah, he's just, he's a little, look, I, he was a, he sounded to me like yeah. a down to earth farmer. Yeah. He's just stoic. Been work, yes, yeah, stoic is a perfect word. Yeah, there you go. Yeah.
0: And you know what, Uh he knows and we knew, that's why we were you know, we, again, we would have loved to have present this for you, the listener, but uh, I think, I said this to Scott, I don't think that he's going to say anything different than than he hasn't said already yeah. about the case that's out there that we're trying to present to you now. So it's not like oh, and there's one thing
1: I forgot. Well, I <laughs> didn't. Know? I didn't want it, to keep passing. No, I already felt exactly. bad
0: about calling him at home. The only know. thing that you would have heard <laughs> is it just what he sounds like I'm such a great journalist, Interesting <laughs> <laughs> yeah. journalist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's not even go there. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's the thing is that uh, it's it's no slight against him. I. If I were in his shoes, be like, you know what? If I'm around and I happen to be there and I pick up the phone and it's you, fine. But I'm not coming in from the house. Yeah. I'm I'm not calling you back. It's going to be at at your whim because, again, he has nothing to to gain from this other than being bothered by someone,
1: by the likes of us, for a good 40 minutes. Yeah. I want to take a quick moment to thank everyone who went to Mac Weldon and placed an order using the promo code LEGENDS. We've gotten a lot of feedback from listeners who've been thrilled with the hoodies, underwear, socks, undershirts, and even sweatpants they got using our 20% discount. Yeah, I've had my Mac Weldon stuff for a while now. Actually, the same pair when you heard me last talk about
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I say it's my uh, Walk the Earth uh, undergarments. If I was going to be a Book of Eli Denzel, yeah. I, I had one or two pairs <laughs> and an undershirt and one pair of socks, these are it. Well, as Mack Weldon themselves say, it
1: really is truly better than whatever you're wearing right now. Unless you're already wearing Mac Weldon. <laughs>
0: then it's going to be the same,
1: right? <laughs> or yeah. nothing, yeah. yeah. Well, Perhaps Arnie, nothing, yeah. Well, I'm going to go on record and say that Mac Weldon is definitely better than wearing nothing.
0: No, I will say it is definitely better than, than nothing. I mean, I guess some people are into that. Not me. I like having something there. And especially if it's antimicrobial silver underwear. Oh, like a superhero. Yeah, well, sort of. It's uh, it's Pima Cotton combined with what they call Silver XT2. And let's just say it helps keep things fresh. Ah, oh, okay. Let's ah. do the
1: call to action before you go any further, please.
0: <laughs> go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using the promo code
1: LEGENDS. And remember, if you aren't happy with your first pair of MacWeldon Weldon underwear, you can keep it and they'll still give you a refund. No questions asked.
0: Boy, that is mighty uh, brave of them. But yes, yes that's
1: MacWeldon.com. promo code legends. We now join our story, not in progress. <laughs> it's kind of... Because you would have yeah. missed some stuff. Oh, I, oh that's right. I want to come back now and talk about one of the things that that takes away from the foundation of the idea of a hoax and adds to the foundation of the idea of some, something real. Credibility? Yeah, credibility. Yeah. and okay. And that is the point that... There are other witnesses. Yes, there were. Now, these witnesses were not at the farm. They were not on site. They didn't see anything close up, but they did see something. And this story on its own, it's so fantastic. It seems hard to believe, but the the trace evidence, at least on the surface, both literally and figuratively, does make you think. So we've got Ronnie, who saw the actual ship up close, or so he says. And then we got his parents— who, by the time they came out of the house, saw it in the sky. So now we've got three people who all say they saw something, Whether, but those three people are a family. They could be in collusion on a hoax, but let's say that they all saw something. There were two other people who reported seeing something strange that very same night. I want to take this information straight from Ted Phillips' report on possible confirming witnesses. Elton Smith, and they actually list his address and phone number, which, as Forrest has pointed out to me off the air, yeah. is well, a method
0: of... <laughs> no, they used to do that in the old days, because uh, it just proves, like, you're a real guy, you really live at this address. Right.
1: Yeah, they, they didn't expect,
0: like you would today, where some wacko's going to show up with a duffel bag full of uh, duct tape and a bone
1: saw. Bone saw. Oh. <sighs> okay. Okay, so, well, anyway, Smith, a credible guy, he actually was employed at the Delphus Attendance Center as a principal educator. He stated the following about his observation, which took place at around 6.20 p.m. on November 2, 1971. I saw only a streak of light coming downward to the north of me in the approximate Delphus area as I was walking to the north from the school building to the football field in Bennington, Kansas. I did not see an object, but just thought it was a falling star. As Smith observed the streak descending in the general direction of the alleged landing site just 40 minutes prior to the observation of the landed object, we might assume, and it would be pure conjecture, that Smith may have indeed seen the object on its landing path. If the streak was a meteor, it would have been quite bright as the sky was not in total darkness. As no object was seen, however, we certainly cannot consider this to be a confirmation of the Delphus UFO. Now, here's something I want to point out about this that was interesting to me. Today, we have Google Earth. Hmm. I'm sure back then they could make all these measurements and had yeah. maps and everything. But I went onto Google Earth, and I looked at the school building, mm-hmm. which I'm presuming in Bennington, Kansas, which is a very small town, is in the same place. And I'm thinking the football field is probably more or less in the same place relative yeah. to the building. The building seems like it might be newer on the satellite view, but it probably has the same footprint the football field's not something you generally move unless you've got a right. problem with you know, <laughs> yeah. toxic waste or something. <laughs> <laughs> fairy, rings yeah, fairy rings. Yeah, fairy rings. So the, the interesting thing about the football ring in Bennington is it is perfectly perpendicularly oriented to an axis with Delphus, hmm. which was however many miles away. I think it's something about I can't remember. It's either 12 yeah. or 19 miles away, not yeah. not too far. And Kansas is pretty flat. Yeah, so, but I yeah. guess what I'm saying is if you're standing on the 50-yard line and you were yeah. looking down the paint of the 50-yard line, you'd be looking straight at Delphus, which is where he was walking. Right. So when he specifies that he came out of the buildings, whether the old buildings or new buildings or whatever, and walked towards that football field, if it is indeed the same football field that uh-huh. you can see today on Google yeah. Earth, he was looking directly at Delphus and he saw something... Right before Ronnie saw what he saw, yeah, so it's just it's just something to think about,
0: no, and, and again, he didn't see you know he's too far away to see an actual object or craft, but he did see
1: a big beaming shaft of light right right, yeah, exactly, okay. and right. he is not the only witness though mm-hmm. we also have Lester Ernsberger who lived in Minneapolis, Kansas, not Minnesota because that would have been really far away to see yeah, it right, <laughs> but uh. Ernsberger was a Minneapolis street Department employee and also a reserve police officer. He observed a bright light in the sky in the direction of Delphis at 7:30 pm. Now we've got somebody who thinks they saw something kind of like a shooting star right before Ronnie saw what he saw near touchdown. Yeah, okay roughly right and then we've got somebody else who saw a bright light in the sky departure. Exactly. Ah, right when the entire Johnson family says this thing that was as bright as an arc welder was departing. Yeah, I think that's a pretty. Those are pretty interesting events. Now it's 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 kind of a a person a personage
0: and a locational triangulation. It is. It you, is. You have the, you have the main incident at the focus, and then you have somebody. I don't know the distance. Uh, I didn't uh, measure out the distances between where they saw it come and go. But like, yeah, three different people or three different groups and individuals at different
1: locations and with the right timing. Yeah. And that in itself, again, these would all just be sightings that were unprovable, except we're combining all this with... This stuff that was left on the ground, which right. we haven't gone into a lot of depth on, we we are going to do that in part two, but yes, it's it's still it's it's very interesting. And the only thing I will say is that when you're in in the middle of Kansas and you're in a very small town, the population of Delphus to this day, I believe, is around four hundred. Wow, It's very, very small. Yeah, these are farming communities. You, I will just say, because I've been there because I've done a million road trips across the country. Uh It's one of my favorite things in the world to do. And also I've been, uh, I spent a great deal of time in North Carolina and have been to small towns and down to the beach where there's no light. yeah. And you can see a shooting star any night of the week. Right. When you're out in that kind of area. Well, you don't have a lot of light
0: pollution. Exactly. I, you know, there's, there's not big cities throwing up light into the sky. So you, you can see itself, the Milky Way. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that in itself is not super compelling, but combined with the timing, mm-hmm. the statistical odds of seeing it at that exact moment. Also, by the way, it's still kind of early in the evening and there's, yes. and there's a full moon. That's true. A full moon. Right. Seeing a shooting star with a full moon in the sky... Not as common. Yeah. So it, it's certainly not, you know, maybe a meteor. Yeah. You're you're saying it's not the planet Venus. Yeah. Okay. I'm just saying this this is interesting and for me. For me personally, this definitely tips the scales in favor of something real happening in Delphus, Kansas. Right. Definitely just something that is not
0: naturally or commonly observed. I think we have a good
1: substantiation for that. At the very least. Before we move on, I, I actually left out one other character reference for the Johnsons that I wanted to, to uh, put in. I meant to say this earlier. This, again, is from uh, Ted Phillips' report in the Flying Saucer <laughs> Review. Yeah. This is quoting Thaddeus Smith, who was the journalist that first covered the story and the one that you know came out with her family to investigate the scene. After receiving information late in the afternoon of November 3rd, 1971, that personnel from the Ottawa County Sheriff's Office, Highway Patrol, and the Cloud County Weather Bureau had visited the site and taken samples of the soil and trees, I, with my husband, returned to the Johnson Farm that evening to secure further information they might have for my newspaper article concerning the mysterious UFO. The Johnson family, my husband and I, without lights, walked in the darkness to the site. As we came into view of the area, we could see very distinctly the glowing ring. In the area around and inside the circle, there was nothing but darkness, giving a person an eerie feeling. The Johnson family, having lived in the Delphus community their entire life, are respected, truthful, conscientious, trustworthy, and a well-thought-of, typical, hard-working Kansas farm family. Signed, Thaddeus Smith, reporter delphus republican there's another testament to their character and i think all of these character references add up to people that the locals trusted yeah and well like you said
0: if if anybody you know listening out there is from a small town will know because in a small town everybody knows your business and they they know your family reputation yeah and you know if they're plain speaking folks, they're they're going to say too if you're full of crap. So well, yeah,
1: watch I yeah. uh, watch. Uh, I don't know if you saw it, but you watch Making of a Murderer, that series that blew up oh, last year uh, or yeah. not last year, a few yeah. months ago on Netflix. If you want to see what can happen when a family has a bad reputation, uh, deserved or not, right? Uh, you find out. But it, it's it's a good example of the microcosm of society that happens in those small towns, and which a lot of my family is from as yeah, well. Sure. So. Um, there is there is one thing about this. Story yeah, there I think I think uh I know what you know, you're getting at. We have to share before we end this one. The National Enquirer <laughs> right. actually assembled what I think they called a blue ribbon panel yes. of UFO experts. huh And I think Heineck was even on this panel. I can't remember for sure. And also Ted Phillips was associated with it. Ah, yeah. I see. However, they were going to offer a $50,000 reward yeah for proof of a UFO. So they established these standards and they asked people to start submitting things and it wasn't too long before they realized that nobody was going to have any UFO <laughs> yeah. proof that yeah. would work. Right. So they redefined they issued like a runner-up award, yeah, of $5,000 for proof that a ufo had appeared sort of a, a close encounter of the second the, kind. exactly
0: and, that's what i was going to say a, yeah. a, a second kind encounter
1: yes as opposed to like putting right. a ufo on a truck and hauling it down to the yes
0: i have one in a jar or yeah. here's you know, a, a small humunculus yes i've saved
1: and the the thing about this five thousand dollars it's a it's a lot of money and it's it's no mystery that farming was hard at the time especially oh, yeah. in yeah. the early 70s in kansas yeah Well, there's two things about that. One, I want to say, it's not that long ago. It's
0: not, I mean, if you're young, if you're a young person now, it it might seem like ancient history, but uh, if you're between, I would say, 30 and 50, like, you know, especially if you're 40 to 50, you grew up during that time, you could remember it. And uh, it wasn't a backwards, there was technology, you know, people were a, you know, had been exposed to the wonders of the modern age by then. And so it's, again, it's not saying, it's not like you were saying it was 1871, Okay. Right. So yes. So, but again, it was a while ago, and yeah. and even the the nature of the National Enquirer is I remember it as a kid. You know, my grandparents used to get a copy here and there, and. and you go over for Sunday dinner and you visit, and as a kid, I'd read that and the Time Life series of books that they oh, had, yeah. which were awesome. Yeah. It wasn't as crazy as it got, I think it kind of got to be in the late 90s and, and 2000s. Yeah,
1: I got to say, crazy enough that the Men in Black, the movie, made fun of it as a, as a great source of information. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, they yeah, they broke the John Edwards case.
0: Yeah. When nobody thought they were telling
1: the truth. Yeah, except that everyone yeah. I knew in North Carolina who was- Knew, one, <laughs> yeah. knew about it? Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I had an aunt who was like, oh, no, that guy. Yeah. Way okay. before the word came. Oh, there out. you go. Yeah. Okay. But, no, but
0: w- what we're saying is that the, the reputation of the paper was even slightly, I would say, better uh, than it is now. I think probably Weekly World News has taken. You know, that's the Bat Boy one. Yes, I think that they've kind of taken the, the such the, a famous the, cover. Yeah, they, they've taken the, the standard right bearer now. of uh, of uh, really crazy kind of stuff. But anyway, what we're saying here is that I think they're they're trying to be kind of pseudo serious about this, or somewhat serious about this study because I think if they found something like, well, yeah, here's uh, here's a steering wheel from a UFO and it's like, well, this is, we don't know what this is. If it was something kind of tangible, yes. it's huge paper sales. Yeah, So they're really interested in actually getting
1: something, not being hoaxed themselves. Right. Okay. Right. I think it's pretty clear that this could be a solid motive for generating a hoax. Absolutely. However, I think you'd have to be really, really clever yeah. to do it. And why is that? I mean for a family of farmers in a small town in Kansas to come up with something that's gonna convince astrophysicist and supremely well educated <laughs> yeah. you know, Professor Hynek, Right, the father of ufology. Well, one one of the major dudes, certainly, yes. Yeah, that's yeah. that's gonna that's gonna convince him that they should win five thousand dollars. Right, uh, but, you know, but people have tried stranger things, they had nothing to lose. Well, exactly. And again, getting back
0: to the character issue and the profiling of, a, of somebody who does kind of do a hoax, I don't think they really think it through a lot of times. They're just, it's exciting. It, it is exciting. The notoriety is exciting at the moment. That, that kind of whips you up into a frenzy. And you're not, you're not really thinking like, well, you know what? This video, the, the legs are really baggy and furry. They don't really, you know, you don't put that much into it. That's why I say when it's seemingly well done and who knows, you know, what the outcome is, it's like the Patterson film. Again, I didn't really think about it much at the time, but kind of the same, similar era. Boy, if it was faked, it's very well done.
1: Yes. Okay. So we've definitely established a motive to create a hoax in the hopes of financial gain for this hardworking farm family that may have been having a hard time. I believe their primary crop was wheat. There was a lot of things that can happen in Kansas, especially in the 70s. I believe there were a few. Yeah. There were serious storms. There were droughts. There were tornadoes. There's all kind. Of, there were tornadoes actually just a couple of weeks ago, right? Or, uh, 60 miles east of Delphus. Yeah, like we said, devastating.
0: Big, big open uh,
1: area, so a lot can happen. Yeah. Weather-wise, so, at least, yeah. So you have to stop and think. Maybe it's a big conspiracy. Maybe the other eyewitnesses are friends of the family and feel bad for them. Everybody wants to help the farm out and they're all participating in this hoax <laughs> yeah. to try and win this $5,000 for them, there's just one problem. Yeah. There's a lot of websites online that talk about the Delphus Ring case that will say that the National Enquirer contest raises a red flag with regard to a possible motive for creating a hoax. But what none of those websites did that we have done was dig down on it, drill down on the facts behind the Inquirer contest. And what we found out was that the contest was not announced until six months after this sighting happened. In about a week, with the second and last part of this story, we'd like to thank our sponsors Blue Apron, Mac Weldon, and the Great Courses Plus. You can now find easy links to all of their offers at astonishinglegends.com/slash/sponsors. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the ARC and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners.
0: You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, and Twitter, Tumblr, Google, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night.